Good morning, church. Last week, someone uh, brought me a little fish made out of a bulletin, folded right into a fish. Apparently, that's something you do when you get bored. So that's why we add that up there. Yeah. Hey, great to see you this morning. Uh, We've had our customary snow here on Sunday, but we don't care. We are hardy men and women from Indiana, East Central Indiana. We don't care if it's snowing. We've seen that before. We just keep going no matter what. So, yeah. (laughs) I'm so glad you have your Bibles with you this morning. We're going to look at the prodigal son this morning as we launch these 50 days of transformation. I know you've been excited about this and really looking forward to it as I have. So as we begin this today, it's going to be great fun. I'm going to uh, read this uh, story to us beginning at verse 11 in just a moment. I wanted just to highlight this uh, special manual that will help you through the transform, transform process. And let me just, if you, do, if you don't have one of these books, let me just uh, remind you what's in it. There's a place right in the front of the book. We talked about goal setting last week. And if you did not hear last week's message, you have to get, go online and listen to it and, and be challenged by the spiritual vitality that comes when we set goals, meaningful goals in our lives. And as you know, we're going to be asking you to set goals in all of these seven relevant issues of life. Today we're going to be talking about spiritual health, next week physical health, then mental health, emotional health, relational health, financial health, and then vocational health, all of these areas that are so poignant and so relevant in our lives. A place to set goals and write those down so that you can reference those as you go through it. And then there is the next section each week. There is the outline for the small group meeting with all of the verses listed there and the places where you can keep the notes during your small group. And this, and then right on the heels of that in the book, is a daily devotional. So for all 50 days of of these seven weeks of Transform, each day has its own devotional pertaining to that week's theme. This week it's on spiritual health, so Monday all the way through the week. Scripture verses there with careful thoughts, place to take some notes if, you're, if you hear God speaking to you about it. And so in one handy manual here, you can have all the things that you're doing because all this information, when you hear it, just as I've presented it just a moment ago, it can feel overwhelming. You know, geez, if you maybe just give me one or two things the next couple of months, maybe I could manage that. But if you've got it all in one place like this and as you're processing as you go and you can go back and rehearse what you've learned and what you've heard, that would be really helpful. So I encourage you to grab one of these books. They're in the bookstore and you can get one on the way out today. It would really be helpful to your process. All right, again, today's uh, text is found in the Gospel of Luke. This is the story that Jesus told of this prodigal uh, called the prodigal son or some call it the story of the loving father which is also apropos. It's uh, certainly about this loving father. And I want to read from verse 11 through verse 24. May I invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's word. Beginning at verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. May God encourage us today through this powerful story. You may 
Be seated. Thanks so much. Let me just uh, lay this premise down today when we talk about spiritual health. The further you get from God, the further you get from God, the more your life is troubled. You agree with that? The further you get from God, the more your life is troubled. And the closer you get to God, the more your life is transformed. I think you agree with that too. Further from God, the more trouble you see. The closer to God, the more opportunity for transformation. You know, our theme verse uh, for these uh, seven weeks is going to be Rome, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which is, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed, be a nonconformist, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let me, let me just remind you that the way that human psychology works is when we entertain thoughts, it tends to affect and influence the way we feel. And the way we feel then affects the way we act. So for thinking about change, thinking about transformation, moving from one kind of life to a different kind of life, this whole transformation actually takes place first in our thinking, in our thoughts. Because the way we think is the way we then tend to feel. And the way we tend to feel then affects the way we behave, the way we act. So change, transformation, doesn't begin with the way we feel. It doesn't begin with our behaviors, the way we act. It doesn't even begin with our will. What it begins with is our thoughts. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so what I'm going to do these next seven weeks is, is invite you to think about your spiritual health, your physical health, your relational health, your mental health, and the way you think about those things, because the way you think will affect, ultimately affect your behavior. And so we want to renew our minds in this transformational process. Very, very important. And we're going to do it in all these seven, seven areas of life. And we then see this transformation as possible, because God has given us models of this transformation in many people's lives. When we read the Bible, we see some of these examples. For example, the Apostle Paul, who originally was called Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish guy, highly educated, very powerful personality, and was very deeply offended by this emerging new movement of people called Christians. And he hated Christians. He persecuted Christians. And he went about persecuting new believers in Christ and even to the extent of putting them to death. He's a religious terrorist. This same guy, Saul of Tarsus, once he got close to God, had an encounter with God, and grew close to God, he became what we now describe as the apostle of love. Saul of Tarsus becomes the great apostle Paul, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, arguably wrote the most beautiful and profound poem on love that the world has ever heard, has ever been penned in 1 Corinthians 13. He's the apostle of love. That's transformation. Wouldn't you agree? How about, uh, how about uh, this prophet named Isaiah? He was a good example of this. He was a guy who suffered with depression. He had some, some baggage, had some issues. But yet, as he got closer to God, he sensed God calling him to a significant role and purpose in his life. And he became a great leader in the nation, a national prominent leader, prophetic in nature. God used him greatly because of this transforming work in his life. Remember, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and in that encounter with God, got close to God on Sinai, received the Ten Commandments. When Moses came back down off of Sinai with the Ten Commandments, these tablets under his arm, he actually had a change in appearance. The Bible says his hair had been whitened, his countenance began to glow. Uh, just being close to God transformed this man, even in his physical appearance. Maybe you know someone like, like that who, once they got close to God, their whole life changed, including the way they look. It's an amazing thing. The Bible says that people, it was hard for people to look at Moses because he was reflecting the presence and closeness of God. So we all know that you want to get closer to God. You wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't want to get close to God. I mean, can we just settle on that? I mean, why in the world are you here? I mean, you had to overcome some stuff to get here today. And the reason you're here is because you want to be closer to God. And that's good for you. But let me just, let me just give you some uh, 
some perspective as we get started on this. The Bible says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We each have turned to their own, our own way. Now, the Bible refers to you and me as sheep. Now, if you've ever raised sheep or been around sheep or studied sheep or know anything about sheep, you know that sheep are not the brightest animal in the, in the kingdom. Sheep, sheep are a little, a little dull. Sheep, in fact, have some natural instincts. And one of the instincts that a sheep has is to stray and to get off course and to drift. And so what comes natural for a sheep, and by the way, we've been referred to as sheep, right? We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each to our own way. And so what we learn from the Bible is that God refers to us as his sheep, which, you know, can be an endearing kind of association because we're his sheep and he's the shepherd and you know, that's all good. But the problem, of course, is that we don't have to be taught how to drift, how to stray. That comes natural to us. We don't have to learn how to get away from God. We do that without even trying. It just comes to us. We know, we know how that happens, just to drift away from God. And because our tendency is to stray away from closeness with God, we have to be intentional about our desire to be close to God. And so we have to work on that. Um, some of you maybe remember times when you were especially close to God. You felt his presence. You sensed his closeness. But you might also have a part of your story to say, you know, I'm not as close to God as I used to be or I want to be. I've, I've missed that intimacy with God. And here's good news. Uh, no matter how close you are to God today, maybe you're a long, long way from God. If that's you, I've got good news for you. If, maybe you feel like you're close to God today. Well, let me just remind you, God wants you closer still. And maybe, maybe you've drifted away from God and you just need to get back home. You need to come home and reestablish that relationship. In all of these categories, what we find in this story that Jesus taught from Luke 15, the prodigal son, are some amazing ideas, steps that you can take in order to rejoin your closeness with God. And I want to encourage you in that. So let's just look at those things that we can learn. There are actually four of these important things that we can do to encourage the kind of transformation that God wants to bring into our lives. Remember this, uh, this guy, this uh, prodigal, he goes to his father and he says, look, I, I want mine. I want my stuff. I want my inheritance. I want it now. I don't want to wait. If you don't have the cash on hand, the credit card will be fine because uh, delayed gratification is not in my vocabulary. I want it and I want it now. I want what is mine. And so this young guy, he grabs his inheritance and he leaves town. He heads to the Sunset Strip in Jerusalem where he starts wasting away his inheritance with wine, women, and song, mostly women, I suspect. And there he is until he runs out of money. He runs out of money, which means he ran out of friends. On top of that, there's a famine in the land. So a recession hits. There's no employment to be had. He becomes homeless. He becomes destitute. He's standing on the street corner carrying a sign. We'll work for food. Someone comes up to him and says, I got, I got some work. He says, well, I'll do anything. I'm desperate. And he says, well, I've got some pigs that I need feeding. So you can come to my place and slop the hogs. So, they, so the guy goes to the farm and starts slopping the pigs. And he's so destitute and so pitiful that he's slopping the hogs with this slop. And one day he's slopping the hogs and he looks in the bucket and he goes, that looks pretty good. Here's a young Jewish boy hanging out with pigs. Now let me just tell you something. That's not where a young Jewish boy wants to hang because it's not kosher. For Jews to hang out with pigs, you're not even supposed to touch a pig. They're, they're dirty and they're unclean. And so you don't touch them. And so, the, so for this young Jewish boy to be hanging with the pigs, this was the lowest. I mean, he had to look up to see the bottom. And then, and then the Bible says, and finally, he came to his senses. And he got perspective. And he wises up. And he realizes he's wasted his dad's inheritance. And he thinks to himself, you know, the guy in the lowest strata in my father's house is, has it better than me. The guy in the lowest rung in my dad's house has it better than me. And so he said, look, I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and ask if I can just be one of the servants in the house. I don't deserve to be a son any longer. 
I've, I, I cook my goose. I ruin my life. I get it. But at least in my father's house, I'll have a roof over my head and a regular meal. And so that's his determination to go back home and plead for mercy with his dad. Well, we know the father's response. We'll get to that just at the end of our message today. But here are the things we learned from this young man in this story. Number one, he got fed up with his life. Fed up with my life. Get sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, I'm stressed out, lonely, depressed, overworked, busy, don't even like myself. Why should anyone else like me? I don't, I don't like hanging with me. And here's what we learn about life change and transformation is that nothing happens in our lives until we finally get dissatisfied with the way we are. Change does not happen until we come to terms with how painful the status quo is. And so until we are dissatisfied with our current status, nothing is going to happen. Not going to happen until you get fed up. And this is, uh, this is the ways of God. And God will come to you and say, you know, are you happy with your life? And then you say, well, yeah, I'm pretty happy. Here's something that you can know about God's will for your life. God is never quite satisfied with where you are. God's at enmity with the status quo. God is constantly moving, challenging, uh, chiding, nudging, wooing, convicting, probing, prodding us to be more like him. We've talked about this many times. God is not so much interested in what you do as who he is, who you are becoming in him. He cares more about who you are at the level of your personhood and your character than about what you do or what you accomplish. And so God's constantly trying to conform you to the image of Christ. It's the number one goal for God in your life. Someone says, I don't know the will of God. Well, I know one will of God for you. He wants you to be like Jesus. And, and so he's constantly nudging us that, in that direction. And so God will actually nudge you occasionally. He'll cause some rainfall. You say, well, I'm satisfied with my life. Okay, God, great. God loves you just the way you are. He does. He loves you just the way you are. But he won't be satisfied with that. So he'll send a little rain into your life. And if you don't notice that it's raining, he'll send a little bit more rain into your life. And if you don't respond to that, then he'll send a storm into your life. Some of you are in a storm right now. He'll go knocking on your door. If you don't open it, he'll knock a little louder. If you don't open it, then he'll, he'll just blow the door down. Some of you have your, your door blown down in your life. You lost your job, you lost your marriage, you lost your friend, you lost something important to you. Why would God do that? Why? It's because God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much that he won't let you stay that way. That's his deal. Let me put this on the screen to say it another way. Because God does everything he does in your life out of love. He does not want you to miss him, and he does not want you to waste your life. You know the old phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? Well, you actually can if you salt his oats. You make him thirsty, and he'll drink. And oftentimes, God makes us thirsty by putting salt in our oats, so to speak. When you, when you start saying, I'm unsatisfied with my life. I just don't like the way I'm living. I don't like this. Well, well hello, this is, that's God knocking on your door. That's why that dissatisfaction is occurring. So the first step in transformation is to get discontent or even disgusted, get fed up with the way you're living. Jeremiah 29, 13, this is a great verse. Jeremiah 29, 13, it's in your notes. God says to us, you'll find me when you get serious about finding me and, and wanting me more than anything else. You'll search for me, God says, and you'll find me if you search for me with all of your heart. Get serious about it. God's not going to reveal himself if I just kind of want to do it on a casual basis, kind of haphazard. Uh, but if I get to the place where I say, look, there's got to be more to life. There's got to be a better way to life. There's got to be a saner way of living my, my life. I'm fed up with the status quo. You get to that point, sick and tired of being sick and tired, then you're postured for transformation. Now, here's the second thing that we learned from the prodigal, and that is to own up to our sin. Own up to my sin. Verses 17 and 18 from the prodigal story, when he came to his senses... He said, I have sinned against God and against my Father. In other words, he came to an understanding, look, I'm not living God's way. I've been living my own way. I've been living in such a way that protected all of my selfishness and protecting all of my fears and protecting all of my dysfunction in relationship. 
and been living in a dishonorable way to God? And you know, that, that can happen, can it, in life? You, you live in such a way that you're willing to protect the areas of your life that need the most adjustment, that need the most healing, that need the most transformation. Isn't it true that, that the human tendency is to protect those areas of pain and dysfunction? We're afraid to go there because we know that to go there, it's going to be hard and difficult. The process of healing and recovery from those issues, those wounds, those problems, those bad relationships is going to take a lot of me. And so what happens is our temptation is to just learn to live with it. Now, I know there's consequences. I know there's consequences in my own soul, in my relationship with key people in my life. And it affects everything I do, but I'm willing to live with it because it's just too hard to imagine going there and, and getting changed, getting transformation in that area of my life. But here's what God says, look, you got to go there because I've got a better way. I've got a better life for you. I've got something more for you. Yeah, I don't want you to get stuck there. I want you to move. I want you to get healing and move forward. You know, so for some folks, it's about control. This is a, the personality types who just want to make sure they're in control of everything and everyone. And what will happen to you at some point in your life is you'll, you, it will occur to you, I have control over absolutely nothing. And it just makes you worse because then you try harder to control things that you can't possibly control. And you get ugly and nasty and you hurt people and, and you dominate people and you, and you, and you just get, get ugly toward other folks. But at some point, you've got to be ready to resign as the general manager of the universe. Because the universe won't cooperate with you. And God won't allow it to cooperate with you. And so all of these things tend to stand in our way of actually owning up to my personal responsibility and giving over to God my failure, my fault, my pain, my need. And so that's why Isaiah 59 verse 2 reminds us of this. He said, your sins have separated you from God and have hidden his face from you. Wow, that's something. You've been in a season of your life like I have when you, when you just don't feel close to God and you wonder why you feel so distant and, and you pray and it doesn't feel like it even clears the ceiling. You're just not sure what's happening. One of the reasons why we feel separate from God and isolated from God is because of our own sinfulness. And we won't own up to it. We won't confess it. We won't admit it. God, God says your sins has separated you from God. He's hidden his face from you. If you feel far from God, then, the, then the, the question is, guess who moved? If you feel isolated, separated from God, guess who moved? Because God hasn't moved. He hasn't left. He hasn't relocated. He's not out of town. He's not out of the country. He's not in some foreign place. He's still close to you. And what's happened in our lives is that we've allowed other things to take the place of God in our lives. We've fallen in love with other things. The Bible calls these idols. An idol can be your car, it can be your job, it can be a dress, it can be the way you look. Anything that causes you to love it more than you love God becomes an idol. Money can become an idol. Success can become an idol. Golf can become an idol. And these aren't bad things. They're just not deserving of the first place in your life. And they separate you from your relationship for, with God. So what you want to do is own up to that. I own up to the idea that something has separated my relationship from God. Look at this on the screen. Here's the fact. You're as close to God as you choose to be. You agree with that? You're as close to God as you choose to be. Now, some of you are hesitant right now. You're, you're wondering about that because your, your MO is to find someone else to blame. I said this last week, um, you spell blame, be lame. It's being lame when you blame other people for your spiritual condition. So listen, you can't blame your husband, you can't blame your wife, you can't blame your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. You can't blame the government. That's one thing you can't blame the government for. Not close to God anymore, government. Can't do that. Can't blame other people. You know, if my husband were just more dedicated to God, if, he was, if he'd just take the, the spiritual head of our family, if he would just be more 
godly, the way he goes through life and leads our family, then I'd be closer to God. Really? If my girlfriend was, is, if she just was more in love with Jesus, if she's just more passionate in her faith, then I th- I'd be closer to God too. Oh, is that right? You are as close to God as you choose to be. <laughs> Sorry to break that to you. But I'm trying to get you to own up. Because if you'll own up, this is an important step. That's what the prodigal did. He finally came to his senses and he said, look, this is crazy. This is crazy. What I'm doing is wrong. What I've done is, is bad. And I just, need to, I just need to say, I have sinned. I have failed. My choice. So when I come and, and say that, God, you know what I've done. You know I'm really sorry. What does God do? Perhaps the best example of this is in Psalm 51. This is King David who, who made these uh, three uh, minor errors. First, he committed adultery. Then he conspired. And then he committed murder. Adultery, conspiracy, and murder. Now, let me ask you, were those lightweight grievances or, or is that heavyweight stuff? It's heavy, horrible, terrible, consequential. This is something that can like ruin a life and all the lives that's associated with it for a generation and then those to come. This is serious trouble. And so David comes to his senses. He realizes this isn't the way to live. This isn't right. I've done wrong. I have sinned. And he goes to God and he confesses his sin. And this is what he said. Be merciful to me, O God, because of your constant love, because of your great mercy. Wipe away my sins. Now, he, it wasn't like he cheated on his, on his math test. He's confessing adultery, conspiracy, and murder. And he says, wash away all my evil and make me clean. I recognize my faults and I am conscious that I have sinned against you. Now, that's owning up. And what did God say to him? Next verses, the Lord says, no matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. That's an image we identify with today. This is the oxyclean verse of the Bible. This is amazing. Doesn't matter how deep, how dark, how, how, how terrible your sin, I can remove it. I can remove that stain. You'll never get that stain out. Boy, I made a mess of that one. God says, watch this, white as snow. Wow. Wow. Now, that, that's the stain-removing verse of the Bible. That's awesome. Next week in your small groups, you're going to study seven habits for spiritual growth. And these are going to help you understand how important it is to uh, engage these habits in order to grow spiritually. And one of the things you're going to learn is that confessing your sin is an important thing to do. And that's, that's, an, that's an important, essential part of this process of transformation, of authentic change. I've got to get fed up with the way it is, and then I've got to own up to my failures and my faults. Now, one of the, one of the, the habits that your small group uh, conversation is going to be around this week are disciplines that you engage on a regular basis, and there will have to actually be seven of those disciplines. I want to give you two of those just ahead of time, so you'll have a heads up on that. One of those is a regular spiritual checkup that you should engage. Just to pause and ask yourself, how am I doing spiritually? And then go through a checklist, and, and we'll help you understand what those things are. And it's a good idea, isn't it? I mean, most of us have a, an annual physical. We go see the doctor, and everyone, everyone should. An adult person should get an annual physical so that the doctor can check you out and make sure that you're doing okay, so your numbers are good, your levels are good. Make sure that there isn't something growing in your body that shouldn't be growing there because if something's growing there that shouldn't, you want to find that as soon as possible, not later, but sooner. And so checkups are important. We all get that, right? You need to get your heart checked. You need to get your blood pressure checked. You need to get all that. And you get to a certain age, then you get your colon checked. That's a good experience, isn't it? How many, would someone like to tell their story uh, about their experience with that? <laughs> someone said the, the preparation for a colonoscopy is like a space shuttle launch, and you're the space shuttle. Yeah. Something to look forward to. Yeah. For those of you who haven't had a colonoscopy, 
Find someone who has and they'll explain it to you. <laughs> Same is true in your life. If sin starts growing in you, it can become a cancer. It's better to nip it. Nip it in the bud. Nip it in the bud. Yeah. Before it gets really big. So a checkup is important. I, every Christian can go through a checklist that looks like this. Uh, this is part of the checkup that I kind of do with myself. One is to ask myself, am I faithful in worship? Do I worship God? Do I worship God privately? Do I worship Him publicly? Do I worship God? Do I engage God at a level of worship? Because that's good for me. It's what God asks of us, and it's what's good for us. And so am I a worshiper of God? Because if I'm not worshiping God, then I'm drifting from God. So you're either intentionally moving toward God, or you're a sheep. You get drift. You get stray. It comes natural. You're drifting. The other thing for me is fellowship. And I ask it this way. Am I regularly engaged in, in meaningful relationships with other people of faith? Am I, am I relating at a, at a significant level with others who are on this journey? Am I close in fellowship with folks? It's an important question. Now, another question I have is about discipleship. Am I, am I regularly uh, sharing my life in such a way that, that, that I'm not only giving, but I'm receiving? I'm learning. I'm teaching, and then I'm learning. Am I, am I engaged not just in relationships that are meaningful, but am I in a process with those relationships that's transformative? Does it matter that I'm with those folks? Another thing that I ask myself is about ministry. Am I regularly engaging in ministry to serve others in Jesus' name? You say, well, guys, that should be easy for you. That's all you do. But for me, what I, what I have to do is separate out what I do for my job description with ministry otherwise. And so am, am I actually engaging in meaningful ways to help serve other people in an honorable way? Am I doing ministry beyond what I, you know, the job description here? For you, it should be easier to ask, am I doing ministry? And then the last piece that any Christian can ask is, is about evangelism. Am I regularly living my life in such a way that reflects the gospel, and am I, on a regular basis, sharing a compelling verbal witness to Jesus Christ with someone who needs to know him? Because every Christian should be involved in evangelism. Because everybody ought to know who Jesus is. And the way you came to Jesus is because someone told you you saw in their life something that appealed to you, that drew you, and you heard someone say, this is the way, walk in it. And there are people that you know who need to see a compelling witness of lifestyle and effect and also to hear a compelling witness of a story of how Jesus changed my life. And so I asked myself, when was the last time that I had a meaningful conversation with someone about their faith? That's, that's a checkup. That's challenging, isn't it? Because if I'm not sharing Jesus with others, I'm drifting. I'm drifting. There, there isn't anything that provides accountability to your life as so much as sharing your life with others. And so there it is. It's the habit of a regular checkup. Um, and you're going to be setting these goals every week in your small groups. And this will be an opportunity for you to list some of those things that you want to do and use as your checklist. And you can create your own list and and it will be very, very meaningful and very, very beneficial. Here's the memory verse for this week. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. The old is gone, the new has begun. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now that's a positional statement. What that means is God is reminding us that we are a new person. That we have new power through the Holy Spirit. We have new ability. We have a new community. We have the church. We have a new identity. Our identity now is with Jesus. We're a follower of Jesus. We identify with Him. And you have a new destiny, an eternal hope. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become new. So a, reg a regular spiritual checkup. The Bible says test yourself to make sure you're solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourself regular checkups. Psalm 139 is a searchlight verse. Verses 23 and 24. This is, again, 
King David writing, Search me, O God. Listen to this, this is penetrating. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Could I just give you a word of warning? Don't go praying that verse unless you're really sincere about God revealing stuff to you. Oh, gee, that sounds like a good idea. That's, that feels like a warm and wonderful thing to do. Dear God, Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, search me and know my heart. <laughs> Put the spotlight on my, the essence of who I am. <laughs> Try me. Test me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. It's all flowery language, you know, exalted language. Sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? Don't, I'm warning you. Don't pray that unless you want God to put the spotlight on you. Because when he does, you're going to go, oh, no. Oh, I didn't know that was in there. Oh, my gosh. What have I done? What have I been doing? Yeah. But it's, it's good. It's important. 1 Corinthians 11, a man ought to examine himself. Examine himself. This is in the context of the Holy Communion. Uh, before you eat the bread and drink the cup. So th this is what we do. We get fed up, and then I own up to my failures and my sins. And then here's the third thing we learn from the prodigal, and that is I offer myself. I offer up myself. My life, myself, my total being. Notice when the prodigal drifted away, this is what he said, give me my, give me my share, give me my inheritance, give me my stuff, give me mine. I want my, 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 my stuff. Selfish. But by verse 19 of our text in Luke 15, he returns to the father and what's he say? Make me a servant. Now that's transformation. Would you agree? That's a boy who's been transformed. That's a boy who has actually grown a bit. This is, a, this is a guy now on the right, right track. He, he originally says, give me mine. But on the next time you hear him, he says, please make me a servant. So he goes from give me, give me, give me to make me, make me, make me into something else. So he goes from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And this is an important question, isn't it? Have you ever paused to ask yourself, am I a self-centered person or a God-centered person? Wow. And then be honest about that. Be sincere about that. That's a challenge, isn't it? And, and all of us have to just remind ourselves, look, we're not all there yet. But we strive to be God-centered and not self-centered. So that transformation isn't going to happen overnight. In fact, it's going to take an entire lifetime. We're all in process. The paint is still wet on all of us. We're all in the, in the, in the process of transformation. And it's going to take time to do it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we reflect the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. You remember the word trans, uh, transformed is actually the word metamorphoso from the Greek. And we get our word metamorphosis from that. And we understand what that, you know, what being more, you know, he morphed. <laughs> That's what God wants for us. You think of nature, you, you see the little caterpillar on the ground, a little worm crawling along. He climbs up on a limb, cocoons himself. Then there's this pupa stage, this chrysalis stage. He's all ugly and looks like, you know, you, you see one of these things on the branch, you look at it, you go, man, that's ugly. It looks like something died. Nasty. But in due time, what's, what emerges? It's the butterfly, right? So, this, so here you go from, from this earth-crawling worm to this spectacular, beautiful, stunning display of God's created order this butterfly, beautiful in appearance and amazing in its capacity to soar and to fly. Just a stunning display. Well, listen, friends, God doesn't want you to be, he doesn't want you to be a worm crawling on the ground. He wants you to be a butterfly. He wants you to be beautiful, not ugly. He, he has a great idea for your life. He has a great plan for your life. He has a great destiny in mind for you. He wants you to soar. He wants that for you. But listen, the only way you can go from where you are to where he wants you to be is you have to experience the transformation. You have to submit to the process. So important. And so you offer yourself to that process. You submit to the work of God in you in order for this transformation to take place. There will be no transformation until you really surrender your life. 
Now let me just uh, then talk about the father's response. This is such a great this is such a great response. Look at Luke chapter 15 verse 20 and 22 on the screen with me. It says filled with love and compassion. This is the father now. He ran out to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him and started saying bring the best stuff, the robe, best ring, best robe, best shoes, best fatted calf, all these things. Notice he didn't wait for his son to come home. While he was still distant, he ran out. And let me just remind you, this is what God is waiting for in your life. You know, if you ever heard someone say, you know, come on, turn to God. He'll meet you halfway. Well, that's a misnomer. You don't have to go halfway. It's not necessary. All you have to do is be going one direction and just stop and turn and say, wait, this isn't working. I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm fed up with this. I'm owning up to, my, to, to the mistakes I've made, the cho- poor choices I've made. I'm, I'm going to turn myself around. And all you have to do is just turn yourself, change your mind, transform your thinking, and turn toward God. You don't have to go halfway. All you got to do is turn toward God. He will come running for you. He will run to you. And he will grab you around the neck and he will kiss your face. And he will be calling out, bring the best we've got. This daughter of mine, this son of mine, he was lost. I thought he was dead and gone and gone forever and lost. I thought I lost him, but he's home again. I thought she she left me and when she said she was never coming back, that's what I thought. But here she is, she was dead, but now she's alive. She was lost, but now she is found. And just kisses her all in the face. Bring out the best robe, the best ring, the best shoes. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's party because this wonderful child of mine who I love with an everlasting love has decided to come home. This is the thing that separates Christianity from all the other major religions of the world. Every other major religion in the world says you have a sense of oughtness. And these are the rules. And this is what you have to do. You have to pile up enough good deeds, enough good thoughts, enough good actions to to provide a preponderance of evidence so that one day when you stand in eternal judgment that the things good that you've done in your life outweigh the things bad that you've done in your life. And if you can just get the scales to tip a little bit, then you're going to make it into some other kind of good experience. And if you don't, boy, you're in deep stuff. So you ought to keep trying. You ought to do your best. You ought to keep performing because there's a lot at stake. You want to be a good person, not a bad person. And that's what the world religions say. But Christianity separates itself from that whole idea because that's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches us that when we stand before Almighty God, it's no longer necessary for us to make a case for ourselves. There's, there's not going to be some kind of role accounting, you know, one account on one side and one on the other ledger. Well, it looks like your good, I, good things outweigh your bad things. Come on into heaven. This is the misnomer of what many people in the world believe. But here's what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that when you stand before Almighty God, you say, look, you're just like the prodigal. You say, look, I don't deserve to be here. I haven't earned any of this. In fact, just the opposite's true. I wasted most of it. I made more mistakes than most people make. I'm a mess. I have no hope. I don't deserve to be your son or your daughter. I don't deserve to be in this place. I don't deserve to be in your house. So I throw myself on your goodness and your mercy. I look not to what I have done, but rather what you have done on my behalf. And so I throw myself trusting you, confessing my sin. Look, I'm sick of the way I lived. I own up to my sin. And now I throw myself, all of myself to you. What does the father say to you? Come on in. Man, I've been waiting for you. Don't you know that while you were still a sinner, I sent my only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you? And that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God demonstrates his love for us. This is, this is the amazing grace that God gives to us. This is what separates Christianity, the most distinctive thing about our faith from any other's faith, and that is its grace. God's grace, the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. Jesus told this story so we should get it. Jesus told it to remind us of what the love of God is all about and that we don't have to perform and we don't have to pile up good over bad. Aren't you glad that God doesn't hold a grudge against us for being dumb? 
because we're all just messed up. But he doesn't hold a grudge. All he asks of us is to turn his way, and he'll come running for us. You say, well, listen, I've been living the good life. I'm not sure all this is necessary. Listen, you, you're right. You are. You live in America. You live, the, you live the good life. You're looking good. You're feeling good. You've got the goods. All that's true. There's only one problem with the good life. It isn't good enough. It just isn't. You were made for more than the good life. You were made for the better life. Can you have an ear for that? A life you can never even imagine. Any more than the caterpillar can imagine what it's like to be a butterfly. God has great things for you. And there are, there are people who live next to you. They've got a car and they've got the cash and they've got the clothes and they're going, you know, I'm living it. I'm living the good life. But listen, they're missing the better life. The life that God designed for us. The life that he's given us. And so how do you get back to God? You get fed up. You own up. You offer up. And that's what you do. You know, when I was a kid, I, my mother fed me strange spinach. And when I was just a squirt, I thought strange spinach was really good. Mmm, love that strange spinach. Can't get enough of it. Mmm. And then I got a little bit older, and my mother introduced me to Chef Boyardee SpaghettiOs. <laughs> and I thought, man... You know, that's kicking it up a level. Chef Boyardee. SpaghettiOs. And I just thought that was it. And then I got a little bit older, and I got in a car one day and went out with my friends. I ended up at a pizza hut and had a pizza. That's, that, that's you see, I could, have, I could have gone my entire life eating strained spinach and not known there was a better taste than that one. There's a better taste than that. There's a better life. There's an abundant life. There's a, great, there's a great life. And God has made it possible for us. And that leads us to the last thing we need to do for this change, and that is to lift up my praise. You know, I've just described the gospel to you and what God the Father responds to us when we just simply turn to Him. And so our response to that is to say thanks. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. I lift up my praise Luke 15, it says here, the father says, we're going to celebrate with a feast of eating and drinking. He was lost, but now he's found, so let the party begin. The worship of God, the thanksgiving to God begins when we realize what God has done for us. And then he's throwing a party for us in spite of us. It's because of his greatness. Psalm 68, verse 4 says, sing to, the, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him. His name is the Lord. Let me just... Add this, for your own transformation, you need to start singing at church. You need to start singing if you don't. Some of you say, well, I, look, I, I don't come to church to sing. I just come to hear the, the sermon. Fine, fine, fine. Many of you say, well, yeah, I'm such a poor singer. You know, I'm tone deaf. I, I'm not a good singer, so I don't sing. Well, I will, will admit, I've heard some of you sing. You're, I would describe you as prison singers. You're always behind a few bars and you never find the right key. Yeah. But, the, but what the Bible teaches is to make a joyful noise, and everybody can make a joyful noise. And if we're all singing together, then it doesn't matter if a few of us are off, off key. For your own transformation, you need to sing. I heard the story about a psychologist who, anytime someone came to him seeking help for depression, he asked them this question, did you sing all of the songs at church last week? And if they said... If they said, no, we didn't sing them. And he said, I want you to go back to church for three weeks and sing all the songs and then come back and tell me about your depression. It's interesting, isn't it? Recently, a global study came out done by Swedish researchers. This is absolutely true. They did a scientific study and concluded that the habit of group singing, not singing by yourself, but the habit of group singing is actually good for your health. Watch this. It's therapy to your mental health, emotional health, social health, your physical health. They said it lowers your blood pressure, releases endorphins, makes you feel good, improves your mood, builds your confidence, relieves loneliness, those negative emotions and stress, creates positive emotions. The study went on to conclude that people who sing and worship each week actually live longer than people who don't. There's something, something there. 
They wrote a book, if you, don't think, if you think I'm pulling your leg. It's called Imperfect Harmony, Finding Happiness and Singing with Others. Fascinating studies with these guys. So we're going to do something for your health right now. We're going to stand up in just a minute. We're going to sing together. And as we sing, it's a good thing. So these two spiritual disciplines, these habits that I leave with you today as you get ready for your small group, the first is this regular checkup. Check your spiritual health. And the second thing is to start singing all the songs. The Father celebrated. He had a celebration. Not a condemnation, but a celebration. When the son came back home, he said, look, I'm fed up with my life. I'm owning up to my failures. I'm going to offer up my life. And now I lift up my praise. And the father's response to that was, let's have a party. Let's celebrate what God has done. Just before we stand and sing, would you just take a moment? Let's pray together. Father, when we think of your grace, we're overwhelmed makes our heart want to sing. There's no way we deserve this kind of reaction, this kind of celebration, this welcoming. We come to you and first we say we're fed up. We're fed up with the way we've been living. Fed up with life without Christ. We're fed up with doing it all on our own power. Fed up with all of that. And so, God, we own up. We realize that you haven't moved, but we have. And the reason we're not close is because we've allowed other things to cloud our vision of you. We've allowed idols in our lives. We've loved other things more than you. That's made us feel distant. But we come back today. We own up to our sin. And Lord, we offer up ourselves. We're not saying, give me, give me, give me anymore. We're saying, make me, make me, make me. So, Lord, transform our lives during these 50 days. And let me just say one more thing. If, if you've never accepted Jesus' gift of salvation, maybe you'd like to pray this prayer. I'll, I'll pray it for you. you. You believe it in your heart. Say it in your heart. Jesus Christ, right now I accept your gift of salvation. Thank you for loving me and dying for me on the cross. I give myself back to you. I offer up myself to you. Make me your servant. I ask you to transform my life. I pray in your name, Jesus. I pray. Amen.